0: Okay, so welcome everybody to our cybersecurity conversation about the proposed releases from the SEC related to cybersecurity. Our job here is to have an open and frank discussion regarding regarding the different uh, cybersecurity releases out there. So we're gonna start by going through a little bit of what's already in place in the framework from the SEC, and we're gonna discuss the different releases and just have a candid conversation about what you can expect and the types of things that are coming down the pipe. With me, I have our cybersecurity expert, John Zuska, uh, Kevin Rohn, and myself, our compliance consultants dealing with uh, SEC regulatory compliance issues. And together, we're happy to speak with you about the things that we've learned regarding the adopting releases from the SEC. I'm gonna turn it over to John to get us started with a formal introduction, and then we're gonna have kind of free flow on this uh, presentation as to you know, back and forth and, and un- different understanding, d- different understandings and different perspectives about what we're seeing.
1: Thanks, Mark. Uh, like Mark said, I'm John Zuska, Managing Director of U.S. Regulatory Cyber over here at Waystone. And we wanted to take a little bit of a look back at exactly where we, where we are, where we were, where we came from uh, in the creation of these new rules uh, that are out there. So first off, uh, back in 2005 RegSB, uh, came out and uh, and talked a lot about uh, policies and procedures and rules that need to be in place around cybersecurity and the uh, creation of actual paper documentation and and rules that need to be followed from within your organization. We followed that up with Regs ID uh, in 2013. Uh, that includes your red flags rules and your insider threats, also having to do with cybersecurity. Uh, following that uh, in 2017. The SEC cyber unit was formed uh, and is actively conducting uh, these investigations within regulated firms. Uh, So we have brought us up to 2022 now. Um, The first rule that came out was an investor, investment advisors rule uh, in February, 2022, followed up by a rule around public companies. And these two rules are very similar in nature. And they were also followed up by an additional third rule that covers all market entities in March of 2023. So the SEC went back to open the comment period up and started talking to uh, folks like Waystone, folks like uh, yourselves, and really wanted to get a better idea of what firms like you are talking about, what firms like you are seeing uh, out there, and uh, how they can Best create a cyber environment, a cybersecurity environment uh, by the regulators to really get a good handle on uh, creating a cyber program that works for everyone.
0: Okay, so maybe we could just get a a brief timeline from you, Kevin, regarding the different uh, proposed releases and maybe a little bit about when these proposed rules will need to be followed and adhered to. So we just get a sense of the overall. When was it proposed? Sort of when will it go into effect? Uh, Can you just give us a breakdown of what we know so far?
2: Um, So we had the two proposals um, that the SEC put out, one for the RIA side and one for the uh, broken dealer side. Uh, And those were proposed in the beginning of February with a comment period of 60 days. Uh, That comment period has since ended. Um, Most recently this year, the SEC reopened those comment periods um, with the latest comment period about to end on June 5th. Of 2023. Now we do not know when exactly the SEC will uh, finalize these rules. Uh, That's up to the SECs to decide, but um, that could be a top topic of conversation going forward. Through this, uh, through this, yes. Yeah, uh, so,
0: so let's talk about the typical procedure from the SEC: comment period opens, final comment period closes, and then the commission votes. If the commission votes to approve it, then it becomes a rule. And then we have some sort of implementation period. Either John or Kevin, have you guys seen any sort of data so far on what that implementation period might look like? So once this does get uh, adopted by the commission, how long will I have if I'm a BD or an RIA to actually adopt these rules?
1: So we don't have any specifics around this rule, but we can go back and look at previous rules. Kevin, I'm sure you've seen this before. Um, what is a typical adoption period for a new rule? What does a new rules adoption look like? What is it, how long does the process typically drag out?
2: So it usually drags out between either one to two years. Um, okay. and so when the SEC publishes the final rule, um, that published date from that date on uh, to whenever the specific compliance date will be, uh, will be when uh, any of the parties that are regulated on this rule have to comply by so if we take a one-year timeline say the sec um says by july 1st of this year it'll be by july 1st of the following year
1: now one yeah. of the things that i want to talk about mark is we, we we have seen that this rule has been very widely telegraphed in the fact that existing regulations have been around since at least 2005 uh followed up by the these new rules and regulations is there is there any difference between something that has been around for such a long time that's going into a new adoption versus uh, something that's a brand new rule
0: yeah i hear what you're saying um i think i think one of the things that's different about this particular rule is the the way that the disclosures look we're creating a new form in form adv we're creating a new disclosure and some of the, uh, what is it, uh, 8T or, or Form 8 filings for public filing entities for the disclosures on um, Form V Part 2A. So from that perspective, I think there's going to be a longer adoption time because the SEC has to test and, and implement all these things on their side. So they have a lead time, then everyone else has a lead time. Um, also, I think that while there is this framework there, Making a new rule about what is uh, required to be in writing, some of the the framework changes. I think that they, the SEC is going to have a hard time making a one size fits all rule because of the difference between a small size firm that might have, um, you know, less cybersecurity controls than a larger size firm that might have ninety percent of everything that's already in place. So I really think it 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 is the SEC's obligation to make sure that this isn't so difficult to implement for some of the smaller people that are smaller players in the industry. So I don't know if we think about the marketing rule from the SEC that went into effect, they gave firms an 18 month window in order to you know, actually comply with the rule that the last uh, compliance date. So, you know, maybe we see something like that where it's an optional until it's no longer optional. And that's what the, the marketing rule was. You can choose to, complied prior to the final compliance date. I don't know, Kevin, what would you say? Any any difference in this rule than past rules that you've seen?
2: Yeah, I think it's you hit the nail on the head in that the SEC has to overhaul uh, their forms and set up the infrastructure in which um, any persons that fall under this rule would have to comply by, whether it be on the IARD site where the ADV-C would, be have, would have to be uh, filed. Um, and any other areas, like, such as the um, such as the disclosures within uh, the Part Two A. So, um, I think it's just making sure that the SEC side that they're ready uh, when this information is taken in from their side.
0: That makes sense. Well, why don't we jump into the new rule? And John, maybe you could give us a little bit about. So, if I'm if I'm starting from the framework of I already had some of these compliance obligations in cybersecurity. What do I have to do post this rule being adopted? What is the framework that I have to have at maybe from a bare minimum to you know what that what that looks like? What the SEC says I must comply with.
1: Sure. So there's there's a couple of major components that are you know kind of buried deep within this rule. Uh, one of the big items that's out that's out there is the need for a periodic risk assessment. Um, they the SEC within the the framework of the RIA rule or the IA rule. Does not necessarily go through in enough detail and say that every single year. No, do I think it makes makes sense to have a uh, a holistic risk assessment of your organization done on a yearly basis. There's typically when you when you do a risk assessment year one, there's a there's a long tail on it. You may have two to three years worth of work that you need to do, and that's and that's perfectly fine. From everything that we have seen from the actual running of a risk assessment uh, to you know, a, a potential SEC examination is that when, when the SEC does come on site, they, they don't expect everything to be cleaned up 100%. They don't expect uh, all of your high, medium, and low findings to be removed from your risk assessment. That's not something that, that we've ever seen going forward. We've always seen that they want you to be making forward progress and not backpedaling on some of the changes that you're going to need to be making uh, within your infrastructure and while you are adopting uh, adopting your new, your new rules. The second major piece of that is the need for a, uh, a written annual report. And there are two pieces of the written annual report that are new within this rule, uh, and that is any changes to your information security policies and procedures need to be noted, and they need to be noted on a yearly basis in each annual report. So if you make any major structural changes around how you deal with vendors or how you're dealing with uh, just your your um, your risk assessment process in general, that needs to be noted within that. Uh, the second piece is around, again, talking more about Form ADV and the actual reporting of your incidents. Any incidents that you do find need to be uh, need to be in that uh, that report uh, and and and, and uh, created uh, on an annual basis.
0: So when you talk about the difference between an annual report and a risk assessment, what you're saying is a risk assessment may be the technology and the infrastructure that you have in place, and whether or not that's changed and evolved over a given time period, and your business so- has evolved.
1: So the risk assessment is actually an, a, a cybersecurity and technology risk assessment of your entire firm's infrastructure, their policies, their procedures, the way that they, the way the firm does things on a daily basis. So when it comes to the risk assessment itself, in 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 creating it, we want to make sure that you're categorizing and prioritizing your risk. So go through the findings that you have, and this is something that we we do for our clients. Uh, categorize and prioritize their risks and assign each risk a risk a risk rating, high, medium, or low. Uh, and that does that does not correlate with how how easy it is to complete the implementation, but rather the risk that's fundamental to the to the business themselves. Uh, another component of that risk assessment is the identification of service providers that maintain and store uh, information around the advisor's fund information. This is your vendor management program that we talk about frequently, making sure that your vendors are actually uh, meeting up with the standards that you have set for your firm. Um, one of the interesting new items that's, that's within this rule is, is the need for the risk assessment to be written uh, prior to the adoption of this rule that was never in place, uh, prior to, I guess, the creation of the rule that that was not, that was not in place Uh, And folks could get away with sending it to council or completing it through a screen share or delivered by courier. But now they want to make sure that risk assessment is done with written documentation that backs it up and supports it, which is something that's new.
0: So the risk assessment does not have to be on an annual basis, but must be inviting. And that annual review of the cybersecurity policies and procedures does have to be on an annual basis and might include something that says, here's the risk assessment that we last did. Here's the remediation efforts that were underway. Here's what we've done. Here's what we haven't done. Would that be accurate?
1: That is accurate. And I would also include items uh, within that. Um, Now we're talking about the annual report, not necessarily the risk assessment, uh, but um, you want to make sure that you have some supporting documentation around steps that the firm has taken to shore up the infrastructure, uh, including, uh, whether or not staff has had a, uh, a phishing test or several phishing tests throughout the year, uh, whether or not staff has had training uh, and uh, and their adherence to sort of those training rules that you've put up. They've conducted their cybersecurity training on a yearly basis and attended the, attended the training if phishing went out, who passed, who failed, uh, and if there are any remediation efforts around that, uh, we would like to see that as well. So any supporting documentation around building your program, building your building your plan this is always helpful.
0: That makes sense. A question for you in terms of developing my policies and procedures is do you believe that this changes best practices associated with what my policies and procedures need to be? And does this give me more or less uh, requirements in terms of those procedures? And let me frame this by saying, I know that uh, from a from a high level perspective, a lot of people in the industry are not fans of the SEC saying you must do X, Y, Z due to the significant um, differences from one client to another. Making a statement that says all firms must do this in terms of you know different cybersecurity procedures. I guess my question is, I have a lot of clients out there that ask me, what exactly do I have to have? What's a requirement, and what's a this is a best practice type of thing. And how do I go about that?
1: So, so, you know, the, I'm not, a, I'm not a big fan of the one size fits all approach. And when I, when I complete my risk assessments for my clients and you guys have seen them, they, they do not take that approach uh, as far as one size fits all goes. My risk assessments try to take into account uh, the size of the firm, and and, and what, their, what their operations on a day-to-day basis look like. So a perfect example of this is Security Operations Center, uh, or, or a SOC as it's known in our industry. Uh, there, there, are, there are firms out there that are one-person, two-person shops. No one is expecting them to have a security operations center, although their managed service provider or their MSP may have access to those tools, there isn't anything in the rule that says you're required to have a security operation center. This isn't in the rule. However, um, they will say that uh, you should adopt and implement cybersecurity policies and procedures that fit the nature and the scope of the business. And that I think is the correct language uh, to, to use for this type of situation.
0: That makes a lot of sense. So Taking the initial risk assessment and translating it into different policies and procedures that make sense for that that business's needs, right?
1: Yep, yeah, absolutely.
0: And then amending and or updating your policies and procedures as well as your framework if your business changes. That's a lot of the the conversation that I saw in general.
1: Yeah, not only if the business changes, but uh, just if the if kind of the nature of the work changes. If you find yourself in the situation where you can implement something like that SOC or that network operations center. um, That would certainly be be something that uh, uh, rises to the level of noting uh, noting a change. Um, There has been a lot of talk amongst our clients around what exactly their response is going to be or what their uh, their business strategy is going forward with relationship to AI. Uh, We've been on some conference calls together about that. And um, and if there is something within your organization that has triggered a response to that, you're going to have a uh, an AI or a ChatGPT or a Google Bard strategy moving forward. That may be something that you want to update within your user policies and procedures to accommodate that.
0: Gotcha. And then, you know, one thing that the SEC did point out was that you should be monitoring and considering updates and guidance. From the private sector and from government resources, they pointed to the um was it FISAC or the, the different like NIST frameworks uh, or the Department of Homeland Security CISA framework um, as, as different ways to keep up with market changes. Do you have any guidance for the people out there in terms of ways to keep up with market changes? So
1: CISA is a fantastic uh, a fantastic program that they have that's out there. They have a lot of documentation, as well as guides that you can use to not only craft your program but uh, just making sure that you're adhering to best practices. Uh, I use some of the Nest components in my risk assessments. Um, I would have to say that cho- choosing a risk framework is not is not something that's Really suited to our industry, there are too many pieces and parts and components that are very bespoke. Uh, um, and and selecting a single, you know, monolithic risk framework is not really the best way to go uh, with something like financial services industry. So we take in our risk assessment, we take the approach where we use multiple different standards and merge them together, as well as best practices for uh, for things that we see on a day to day. Uh, operation. Um, so, for example, uh, you know, we we have uh, email retention systems that we require uh, as part of uh, as part of our regulations that are existing. Uh, most other industries do not have that. Uh, so, the structure around how to secure those uh, those uh, tools is is really important to get in in place.
0: Makes a lot of sense. So. If I could just for a second move on to one of the big changes in this rule has to do with record keeping requirements as well as uh, reporting requirements. And I think it would be helpful if Kevin, you could give us just an overview of like maybe just high level in terms of record keeping. What does the proposed rule uh, require that advisors maintain?
2: Sure. So advisors would have to maintain um, certain documentation as it relates to this rule for, uh, around a period of five years. So does it include any of the new cybersecurity policies and procedures that are in effect? Um, the advisor's written report documenting its annual review of its policies and procedures, uh, any, um, form ADV C that's filed, uh, within the last five years, as well as records documenting any occurrence of cybersecurity incidents. Um, for, for a period of, of the last five years. So those are some of the, the record keeping um, that has to be done on the advisor level.
1: Yeah, so hey, can we take a little minute here to dig into this ADVC since we've mentioned it a couple of times here? Um, sure. We're going to include uh, with this presentation and a copy of the Form ADV Part C that, uh, that uh, Waystone has mocked up uh, for you guys to take away and download uh, and look at on your own. But um, some of the items that are discussed within Form ADB Part C or the discussion around Form ADB Part C are timing timing and structure around when it needs to be filed uh, for both the IA side as well as on the public company and the market entity side. Uh, and there's lots of different timeframes that are batted around. Right now, within the, the rule for investment advisors, they have been talking about this timeframe of 48 hours. On the public company side, they've been discussing four days, and there's a uh, there's you know this this wide uh, amount of time difference between the two, and whether or not uh, they will be merged together or they'll go with four days just to kind of keep the the rules uniform. Um, that remains to be seen. Uh, um, from a cybersecurity perspective, this is kind of a new one for uh, for us, uh, where. Uh, folks in the financial services industry are, are are accustomed to having their financials kind of laid bare in the form of the ADV or uh, the ADV filings in general. Um, we take take a much much more secretive approach to our uh, the way that we do business in general. Uh, so having that information laid out for everyone to see uh, seems a little intrusive. Now what's really nice about the way that the SEC's IRD system, uh, working right now is they have the ability to redact information, and they don't necessarily need to take your entire Form ADV uh, C filing and give it give all the information that's uh, contained within the disclosure of the event to everyone in the public. So there is the ability within the system to redact certain information, names, IP addresses, details around uh, around the nature of the incident, uh, and the like.
0: Well, let's, let's think about this for a second, because the form PF changes that came out from the SEC recently had a very similar tight turn line. I think they did 72 hours. Don't quote me on that, please. Uh, but the idea is um, if there's a significant issue on form PF with what you're reporting, you have to provide an update. Now, my criticism, my primary criticism, we're not here to criticize the rule. We're here to figure out what it is and, and how we can comply. But If I'm in the middle of a serious crisis where I'm kind of doing triage with a cybersecurity incident, those first 48 hours are critical. So I'm expected to be reporting to the SEC as I'm getting this information in and trying to triage triage and, and, you know, figure out what's wrong with it. I see that as a potential flaw and, and very difficult from a perspective of fighting a fire on two fronts. I'm already trying to put out the fire and I have to report about it. Like, there's no way you're resolving a cybersecurity incident in 48 hours, to be frank.
1: That's right. There's, there's certainly no way that you could be resolving a cybersecurity incident in 48 hours. Uh, there, there's there been no requirement that your incident must be resolved within 48 hours or even four days. Uh, right. But the idea behind adding this component is that the SEC needs to take in a vast amount of information to find out what the damage that's being done to our industry actually is and be able to actually quantify that. That's the reason behind this. Um, the, the extent of the data that's going to be collected within those first 48 hours or four days uh, will probably be minimal. Name, address, telephone number, contact information, some, a brief description of the event that's, uh, that's uh, going on, Uh, and whether or not the incident has been resolved or does continue. They they certainly have the ability built into it to create uh, an addendum for information or additional information to be submitted, Uh, but they are really trying to provide that guidance. So in the event that they need to or can reach out and lend a hand or provide additional uh, additional uh, information and constructs around the federal government uh, to help folks, I think that is the direction uh, that they are going now. Th- there, there are other components around around the structure of the way the federal government since January first, twenty twenty one, have started to operate, uh, including the creation of the o- Office of the National Cyber Director, which I think a lot of folks are not familiar with, uh, whether it exists or not. But, uh, but they they actually created on the on, in March of twenty twenty three this uh, this national cybersecurity strategy that the president put out through the Office of the National Cyber Director that actually laid out a lot of government-wide initiatives and provided a lot of capital uh, to get that initiative started.
0: That same program, and if you look at the language uh, from the president's release on it, has a lot to do with why I think there needs to be more unity around these different uh, requirements uh, because there's so many different frameworks and we want to get one uh, overarching kind of framework, it, it's, it's re- redundant and repetitive. If someone is uh you know public has a public fund as well as a a, a private fund, you might have two separate reporting requirements. Like I think that that program the government has created should do more. And I think you're gonna we might see a little bit more of the tweak in the language to tr- try to unify a little bit. But I want to go back to before we go into that because that's a whole can of worms. I want to go back to what this form ADVC would would include and when I need to essentially report on it. So I just want to look at the high level. One through four of the form ADVC has probably pre-populated information, who you are, name, et cetera. Let's just call it basic contact information. Items six through nine. Event essentially talks about the approximate date that the incident occurred, the approximate date it was discovered, and whether the incident is ongoing. Let's come back to that, put a pin in that one for a second. 10 yeah. would require the advisor to disclose whether law enforcement or government agency have been notified about the incident. 11 through 15 require the advisor to provide the commission with substantive information about the nature and scope of the incident. I'm not a big fan of that. I think that this is where you mentioned. Um, you know, the ability to redact. Yes. Yeah. The ability to redact. And then 16 require the advisor to disclose whether the cybersecurity incident is covered under cybersecurity insurance policy. If I'm thinking about this from the perspective of numbers six through nine, if this is an incident that is ongoing, if this is ongoing, I really don't feel comfortable disclosing what information was stolen or altered or accessed and how they did it. And then some of the, um, you know, the ongoing nature of this as it's unfolding, you know, that's only going to give people potential ability to exploit this further. No,
1: no, I, I completely agree with you. There there may be a little bit of a difference between whether or not the incident is ongoing uh, as in it's ongoing for the next 365 days, or we're looking to resolve the issue within perhaps the next week or so. So I think, I think that definitely needs to be expounded on and, and, uh, some more detail needs to be collected around that information. It's it's also it's also notable that that uh, the last item on there, uh, whether or not numbers number sixteen that you talked about, whether the incident is covered under cybersecurity insurance policy, and whether or not uh, our clients have cybersecurity insurance, uh, that's kind of a point of contention. Um, whether they take the policy out or they decide to go ahead and self insure um, you know, we we do see that discrepancy frequently uh, when we are interviewing uh, interviewing our clients, I think I think having an insurance company is a very good um, tool to be able to sort of steer your incident response exercise where you get where you get someone that is a qualified breach coach you have the ability to sort of marshal your additional resources if necessary. I think that's uh, an interesting add-on.
0: Okay. Um, Kevin, maybe you could help me understand a little bit more about the um if there's a bona fide cybersecurity incident, what does a significant cybersecurity incident mean? And and how is it like what is the definition around a cybersecurity incident? Do you have any um guidance for us all out there? It's how we think about this. Is it one person's information is compromised, an entire system is shut down with malware? Like there's obviously layers of what a cybersecurity incident might look like. What, what guidance has the SEC provided in terms of what a material incident would look like?
2: So the SEC uses the term significant advisor cybersecurity incident. So it's, it's not inclusive of all cybersecurity incidents. It must be significant. What does that mean exactly? Well, the SEC laid out that this is a cybersecurity incident incident. Um, that significantly disrupts the advisor's ability to maintain its critical operations um, or leads to unauthorized access to the advisor's information. Um, And such leaks of information or unauthorized access results in what is known as a substantial harm to the advisor, uh, to its clients or to any private funds that it may advise. Now, the SEC doesn't specifically define what substantial harm means, But the proposing release goes into certain examples of what that may indicate. So uh, that would include significant monetary loss, um, theft of intellectual property, theft of personally identifiable information about either personnel, employees, directors, clients, or investors, um, certain disruptions to critical operations, such as uh, the advisor's ability to implement certain investment strategies, uh, process or record transactions, and so forth. Um, Those are some of the examples of substantial harm. So they've kind of narrowed it in scope, but it's also up to a broad interpretation of what constitutes significant um, disruptions.
0: Yeah, I have a couple of interpretation issues that I'm not comfortable with in, in this regard. When you say substantial harm to a fund or to an investor whose information was accessed. Just honing in on that language right there, and that implies that a single investor's information access is now a significant uh, disclosure event, right? So, yeah, I, I get it. Everyone is important, and and I think that's that's a uh, critical. And that if only one person's uh, information is accessed, that could be enough for a significant cybersecurity incident.
1: And I, think- I, I mean, what if what if you have what if you have one investor out there, right? Yeah. So it, it, it's. I get if, it. If that single individual is impacted, yeah, I mean that that's material.
0: No, I get it. I I I think it's really hard to find a one size fits all. Um, I I would have seen expected something of a little bit more relative and reasonable in nature as to the definition. Um, so you know any piece of information, what information that's PII, personally identifiable information. Maybe if you go to your reg SID descriptions of, of what information must be kept um, private. So like, I would like to see a little more framework around this. However, this is where I recognize, actually, I pulled when I was looking at the comments for this particular rule, I pulled one comment that I thought was so simple and so on point. This person just said, please just do the right thing for the 99%. Like <laughs> I I think that's where something like this might come into place. It's like you got you can't make a, a rule that fits everybody, but I would like to see a little more framework around exactly what that significant cybersecurity incident looks like.
1: Yeah, okay. I I I certainly would as well. Um I I do know from experience in examining uh, examining firms and conducting risk assessments that, and I'm sure it's, it's the same thing on the compliance side of the world. You kind of know it when you see it. If someone's playing fast and loose with the rules, we know. We know going into it.
0: Yeah, I'll know it when I see it. It's a good quote. Um, in terms of uh, Form ADV, Kevin, can you tell us a little bit more about what the SEC's proposed disclosure looks like on Form ADV? Uh, the part 2A, pardon me, to be more specific.
2: Sure. So part 2A creates a separate item uh, f- that uh, requires advisors to disclose cybersecurity risks, as well as certain um, cybersecurity incidents that have happened, I believe, within the past uh, two fiscal years. Um, and those cybersecurity incidents would include any significantly disrupted or degraded um. The ability of the advisor to conduct its advisory business so it's a bit of a play on the item eight disclosures as as it relates to the cyber the risk that you would put it within the um within that section um it kind of uh, supplements the uh those risks with this separate section which is just exclusive to uh the cybersecurity risks and i think that would just go off of the risk assessment uh john if if I'm mistaken, that.
1: yeah, and I wanted to dig into this one a little bit more. Yeah. So let's let's say the rule was adopted today. Is there is there a two year look back on any cybersecurity incidents starting today?
0: That is actually a great question because I can't find an answer to that in the, the release no. as it is now. I would I would assume not um, because you're you're asking someone to do something retroactively, but. If the whole purpose is disclosure, so that somebody has the ability to appreciate a cybersecurity incident before they make an investment, and the Form ADV Part 2A is the primary disclosure document, yes. it seems reasonable. But at the same time, it seems unreasonable for me to say, you have to disclose something where there wasn't a rule around it in place beforehand. You might have done things differently. You might have changed the way you handled it. I don't, I don't know. I mean, up for debate, in my opinion.
2: Yeah, Absolutely. I think it's also up to how the SEC puts within the the two a two a questions what to include. So it's a two a is a free writing document, right? So it's up to the advisor to answer that particular question and what the SEC actually asks. If they ask for any remediation of those cybersecurity incidents, maybe it is inclusive of the last two years, um, and that you have to include whatever cybersecurity incident happens and if you want to expand upon what you have remediated and improved upon within your cybersecurity program, you're up to do so. Um, but the way I read the rule is that it may seem like you have to include the last two years because it doesn't make that caveat. Um, I guess it would have to also depend on what the final rule does come out to be. Uh, they may actually ex- expand upon whether it's the last two fiscal years, um, regardless of whether the rule has been implemented or not, or whether well, it's two years going forward.
0: You well, know, I just want to read one piece of language from the proposed uh, item 20. And it says, you must include a cybersecurity risk, regardless of whether it has led to a significant cybersecurity incident that would be material to an advisor's advisory relationship with its clients if there is a substantial likelihood that a reasonable client would consider the information important based on the total mix of facts and information. So <laughs> it's very broad in terms of what a investor would, would seek to appreciate upon making an investment. So from that perspective, I think that there's a, if, if they, you know, I'd love to see the final 2A and we, we will provide a marked up version of what we think the ADBC will ask. Um, and I think we can provide some guidance on the part 2A, but I think there's still a little bit more to be satisfied from the SEC in, in terms of what they are, are going to put together. And um, this amendment, I think, doesn't give us the full picture in just the proposed release. But you know, again, I think, I think there's going to be a lot of scrutiny around what you've disclosed if you have a cybersecurity incident in the past and you put nothing there. I think a reasonable investor would want to see that you've taken remediation actions, that you've had any of these incidents. I'm I've worked with plenty of firms that have significant cybersecurity, um, you know, framework in place that have still had cybersecurity incidents. It doesn't mean anything other than they had some good hackers that got onto them, <laughs> to be honest. Um, so
1: Or a good fish.
0: That's right. They are a very good phishing campaign. Okay. So in terms of the ADV Part C, we've gone through the format related to that we've gone through the definition of cybersecurity incident and when a particular uh, disclosure needs to happen. Um, we've kind of talked about the 48 hours and in, in the prompt um, updates to your ADVC filing. What else do you find as relevant or something you would want to know if you're an investment advisor who's um, seeking to interpret this rule? John, what, what are you thinking? What, what else do you want to know about this rule if you're trying to evaluate it holistically?
1: <laughs> well, I think I think one of the I think the in, an interesting item that came up that you know we, you've just discussed was uh, the disclosure of any risks that uh, that might be material in nature that could lead to a breach, right? Um, I think that this would this would on my risk assessment rise to the level of being a critical item, which I do not have very frequently within any of the risk assessments that I complete, but it's it's an interesting item to, to note uh by the SEC that that should uh that should even rise to a level where hey this needs to go on an investment on an investor disclosure form uh whether or not, and 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 I can use a great a great example of having you know an open terminal server without multi-factor authentication that goes directly into an investor's network or um, whether or not they just have no multi-factor authentication on their network at all whatsoever that those are those are items that uh, that might rise to that level, depending on exactly where the configuration lays.
0: Okay, so making sure that it's clear that critical items in any risk assessment may require pending the final review. Pending the final review. Pay, close, disclosure on form ADV, either C, depending on if it's already happened or or in the progress of being remediated, or two A for investment advisors. Um, okay. I, I appreciate that. Uh, Kevin, same question to you. What would you? What do you think is lacking? What information do you still want to see as it relates to this? What, what, do, you, what do you think uh, your clients want to know?
2: Honestly, just what to do to, to prepare. I think the preparation, um, I've been getting a lot of questions about how do we prepare? What do we need to do? Um, and I think that really just starts at the policy level, making sure that you have robust policies and procedures around your cybersecurity and um, you know any bit significant business disruption plans, um, because that, that will be evaluated whether and if this rule comes into effect, it will be evaluated come um, time when the SEC does examine advisors after the rule has been implemented. Um, there may be certain sweep examinations as it relates to this rule. So as a, you know, just to make sure that advisors are complying with this particular requirements. So I think just having those robust positive procedures in place, um goes a long way to really establishing the baseline foundation for complying with the rule
0: yeah well i I think that's that's spot on i think for me what i want to know if i'm sitting in the cco chair uh i want to understand how long is this going to take me to remediate and update so i i think for me it's really hard to understand uh, one investment advisor's at point A and other one's at point B and other one's at point C. Each one of them might have a different path to getting into full compliance with this. And I think uh, what I'm seeing here is that you can probably account for some of the disclosures and you can account for some of the, you know, the, the updated books and records requirements, but you really need to work on that risk assessment and that annual review process. Yes. And getting, getting that in place, I think needs to be first and foremost. Get somebody in there to do a proper risk assessment. Get someone in there to make sure that your policies and procedures comport with whatever risks are found. And the extent to which you have a a significant framework for cybersecurity analysis in place now might mean that you only have to do a little bit of work in terms of that gap analysis. And if you have no reporting now, if you have no cybersecurity framework, you might have quite a bit of work to do. So I think for me, the biggest thing I would want to know is how long is this going to take me to implement? And I think the starting point for that would be, well, let's do a risk assessment and let's figure out exactly what we need to do in order for us to, you know, provide that gap analysis, if you will, of, of where we are and where we need to be.
1: Any I final agree. thoughts I think, on that? I think, yeah. No, I think the risk assessment is is the ideal uh, first place to start. However, to Kevin's point, if you don't have policies and procedures that are accurate to your firm and uh, sized accordingly and reflective of how your firm operates on a day-to-day basis. Uh, I mean you're just as you're in just as much trouble, if not more.
0: Yeah. I agree. Well shameless plug Waystone compliance solutions has cybersecurity uh risk assessment products. John, you want to talk about a little bit about what it is that you do in terms of your framework. I know we've gone through a lot of this, but what, what can you offer for clients that, that need to get this done promptly?
1: sure so we have we have three different products uh, in our list of solutions and we're sized uh, according to you know any any firm that comes to us uh, we can handle folks that are at the enterprise level all the way down through folks that are just starting up hedge funds that are just starting up with one to two folks in their office uh, all the way up through uh, through the senior level uh, we can really handle everything. And that includes full scope, everything that's under the SEC's new regulations that are proposed, including your risk assessments, your annual reports, uh, your training, your fishing, and uh, and kind of everything in between.
0: Great, I know that from the you know compliance solution side and the compliance side, we have done a lot of work with clients saying, "What is the rule? How do you need to comply with it?" So, if you to the extent anybody here does have a question, what do I need to do for this? What is what is the rule going to have in place? Be patient, knowing that the rule has not been finalized, but also be diligent in the fact that once they do finalize the rule, and we do have those parameters in place, reach out, be happy to talk to you about what you need to do, and go from there. Kevin, final thoughts?
2: No, I enjoyed the discussion today. I think, uh, again, just making sure that advisors and uh, any broker dealers are prepared for the rule to come into effect. Um, we don't know the specific timing as it relates to th- this being finalized, but um, be on the lookout for the, from the SEC to issue an adopting release um, sometime between now or by the end of the year.
0: Great. Okay. Well then thank you everyone for attending. We appreciate your time and your attention. If you do have questions, reach out. Uh, we'll provide our contact information for everyone interested. Again, I'm Mark leading with compliance, uh, Waystone Compliance Solutions. John Zuska uh, is our cybersecurity expert, and Kevin Rohn providing compliance uh, needs for everyone. So, thank you again. We'll talk to you soon.